my dear friends, there you are. My apologies for not noticing you earlier. I was entranced by the fire. Please, come closer and warm your bones. The night air is bitter cold, and this time of year it can slip an icy blade between one's ribs. For tonight's episode, we'll journey to a place not far from the Arctic Circle, a land where the sun hides its face for weeks at a time. It's a tale that will send shivers down your spine. So gather round and prepare yourselves for a chilling story. <laughs> oh, I apologize, fellow humans. I seem to have forgotten my manners. Welcome, or welcome back, to ASMR, the only true crime podcast with a unique ASMR twist. I am your humble host, The Group, and I am delighted to have you here with me once again as we delve into the hapless, harsh, and heinous stories from across the globe. Join me as we explore unsolved mysteries from the past, hidden tales unearthed from the depths of the earth, and the most enigmatic cases that have not been solved. Yet. If this is your first time tuning in, there's no need to fret. Just sit back, loosen up, and let my words take you on a journey to a new case that I've stumbled upon during my travels. Oh, and stay close to the fire. The world is silent, not dead. There are things out there that hunger. So welcome, dear listeners, to episode 26 of our journey. Today we'll delve into the mysterious case that took place of the serene surroundings of Lake Bodum in Finland way back in 1960. Four adventurous teenagers set out for a trip to the tranquil lake, but only one returned, barely alive. The rest were brutally murdered. To this day, the case remains unsolved, making it one of Finland's most notorious and spine-tingling mysteries. So, get ready to be captivated by this chilling tale as I guide you through the details. If need be, grab a snack or a drink while you're at it, though you may not be very hungry by the time it's all over with. I'm sorry to say. Content warning. The following episode contains graphic content that may not be suitable for some audiences. This includes descriptions of dead bodies and crime scenes, as well as depictions of violence and references to alcohol and drinking. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Before we begin, a quick note. As today's episode is set in Finland, and most of the individuals involved are Finnish, there will be Finnish words and names featured. As a native English speaker with no knowledge of Finnish, please forgive any errors in my pronunciation. Thank you for your understanding. Let us travel back in time to June 4, 1960. For the tale we are about to embark on, two 15-year-old girls, Myla Ermele Bjorklund, and Anya Tulikimaki set out on a camping trip with their 18-year-old boyfriends, Seppo and Taro Boisman, Nils Wilhelm Gustafsson. They had selected a popular campsite located in the tranquil shores of a lake with a name that's a bit challenging to pronounce. Bodominjarvi? Yeah. And so, to make things simpler, it's commonly referred to as Lake Bodum in English. This serene body of water is situated near the Finnish city of Espoo, 
which is the hometown of the girls. The idyllic scene at the campsite continued without incident until the early morning hours when everything changed. The tranquility of nature was shattered by a merciless killer attacking without warning or remorse. As previously mentioned, only one of them survived, Nils Gustafsson. However, he was left with severe injuries including a concussion, a deep knife wound on his forehead, a fractured jaw, and numerous broken facial bones. In the early hours of June 5th, between 4 and 6 a.m., Bjorklund Maki and Boysman were brutally attacked inside their tent. Stabbed and bludgeoned to death, their bodies were discovered by a group of bird-watching boys around 6 a.m. While they didn't find what they were searching for, they did stumble upon the teenager's tent on the lake shore. They reported seeing a blonde man walking away from it around the time the crime occurred. Anya Tulikimaki and Seppo Antero Boisman's bodies were discovered inside the tent, brutally bludgeoned and stabbed through the fabric. In contrast, Myla Ermeli Bjorklund's body was found on top of the tent, partially unclothed below the waist, next to her boyfriend Gustafsson, who also suffered severe injuries. Bjorklund's wounds were the most extensive and some of the stab wounds were post-mortem. Remarkably, Gustafsson survived the attack but claimed to have no memory of the events that occurred after he lost consciousness. Although the bird watchers had noticed the tent at 6 a.m., it wasn't until five hours later that the bodies were discovered by a carpenter named Risto Saren. After making this gruesome discovery, Saren promptly alerted the police, who arrived at the scene around noon. By this point, more than six hours had elapsed since the victims had been attacked. The crime scene was perplexing from the start, as it appeared that the perpetrator had attacked the teenagers from outside the tent instead of entering it as one would expect. Additionally, evidence suggested that the assailant had used a knife to stab the teens, although there were also signs that an unknown blunt object had been used on them. Numerous items were reported missing after the attack, adding to the perplexity of the case. The keys of the motorcycles were taken, yet the vehicles remained at the campsite. Furthermore, Gustafson's shoes vanished and were found nearly half a mile away along with some of his clothing. The mishandling of the case by the police didn't help matters either and the media was quick to take notice. The authorities made several critical errors in handling the case, such as failing to properly document their findings and neglecting to secure the area to prevent contamination. To make matters worse, after the police left, curious onlookers and campers tampered with the crime scene, potentially damaging and even stealing evidence. In an attempt to rectify their mistakes, the police enlisted the help of soldiers to search for missing items, but their efforts were in vain. Instead, the crime scene was further compromised and many crucial pieces of evidence were lost forever. There were three potential suspects in the case, and the first one was Carl Valdemar Yelstrom, who was commonly known as Kiosk Man because of his stall near Lake Bodum that campers would frequent. However, it was well known that Yelstrom was hostile towards campers, and he had a history of throwing rocks at hikers and cutting down tents. A jarring fellow. There were even some witnesses who claimed to have seen him leaving the crime scene, but they were too afraid to come forward to the authorities. It's been reported that Yilstrom made several confessions, both while drunk and while sober, regarding his knowledge of the crime. Despite this, police chose to ignore the claims. 
Yilstrom also allegedly confessed to being the culprit while under the influence of alcohol, even going as far as confessing to a neighbor. However, police did not investigate further after questioning his wife, who claimed that he was sleeping next to her during the time of the murders. Interestingly, interestingly, Yilstrom was observed filling a well in in his front yard only days after the murder. Why, grew you hilarious, hirsute, ham-fisted hunk. Why would someone filling in their well mean anything? Well, this led some to believe that this was where the missing objects, including the murder weapon, were disposed of. However, despite police searching his property, nothing was found to implicate him as the killer. Nonetheless, Yilstrom remains a suspect to this day. In 1969, Yilstrom drowned himself in Lake Bodum. It wasn't until his wife was on her deathbed that she finally confessed that she had been too afraid of him and his death threats to tell authorities the truth, that she had slept alone on the night of the murders. This revelation raises questions about Yilstrom's involvement in the crime and whether he was the real killer after all. Hans Asman, our first place winner in the unfortunate last name game, became a prime suspect due to his suspicious behavior and movements during the days following the murders. He had been seen walking around the crime scene multiple times, and when questioned by police, he gave conflicting statements and seemed nervous. Moreover, he had a history of violent behavior, and it was rumored that he had a personal vendetta against the teenagers. Aspen's behavior at the hospital raised red flags among the hospital staff as he appeared to be nervous, aggressive, and even feigned passing out. He was covered in red stains that appeared to resemble blood, and his fingernails were dirty. However, police only questioned him briefly and failed to keep an eye on him despite the suspicious circumstances. They even neglected to investigate the stains on his clothes, despite doctors claiming that it was clearly blood. The police considered him innocent due to his alibi, which led to a missed opportunity in the investigation. His suspicious hospital visit wasn't the only strange thing to make Aspen a suspect. No, no. There were other red flags. For example, after seeing a news report about the murders, which included the description of an unknown man who left the crime scene, Aspen cut down his own blonde hair without apparent reason, and, well, it was confirmed by Gustafson that the killer had blonde hair while he was under the effect of hypnosis. Dr. Droma Apollo, one of the doctors who initially examined Aspen, was so convinced of his involvement in the murders that he went on to write three entire books detailing his connection to the crime. The doctor's extensive research solidified his belief that Aspen was indeed the true culprit. Maddie Polaro, a former detective, even connected Aspen with other unsolved murders, five to be precise. Many people considered Aspen's potential political ties as the reason behind the dismissal of suspicion, considering how easily authorities let him go. As years went by, Aspen became known as a recluse of sorts. Plus the rumors that he was with the KGB, it made him an easy target for suspicion in several murders, yet he wasn't accused of anything. Asman's reputation as a recluse only grew with time, and his rumored KGB connections only served to fuel suspicions linking him to other unsolved murders. However, despite being accused in several cases, none of the accusations were to stick. Despite the suspicions towards Aspen remaining strong due to multiple sources, it was only in 2004 that the public decided to shift their focus to someone else. 
The investigators reopened the case after 44 years, hoping that advanced technology could help them uncover the truth. This hope was bolstered by the discovery of new blood evidence on a pair of shoes. Additionally, a woman finally came forward to testify, claiming that she had been camping near the crime scene when the murders took place. Now, you may be wondering who the new suspect is, my fellow humans. Well, it turns out that the answer was someone we were already familiar with. The miraculously surviving victim of a violent attack that left him with broken facial bones. Through DNA analysis, investigators discovered that the culprit was none other than Nils Wilhelm Gunderson. Gunderson was arrested and brought to trial as police claimed that they had always suspected him of being the perpetrator behind the murders. The evidence against him was strong, leaving him with no way to deny his guilt. According to authorities, the shoes that belonged to Nils Wilhelm Gunderson had been worn by the killer during the murder as they were found to be covered in the victim's blood. In contrast, the shoes of Gustafson showed no signs of any red stains. During the trial, the prosecution wove a narrative that involved a physical altercation between Gustafson and Boisman, which ultimately led to the brutal triple homicide. According to the prosecutor's narrative, Gustafson was kicked out of the tent due to his drunken behavior, and Boisman attempted to talk to him, leading to a physical altercation that Boisman supposedly won, causing Gustafson's facial injuries. In a fit of rage, Gustafson returned to the tent and murdered his girlfriend and two friends. He then inflicted superficial stab wounds on himself, hid his shoes, and staged the rest of the crime scene to cover up his actions. Despite the fact that the bird watchers who discovered the crime scene had reported seeing a man leaving the area, the prosecution remained steadfast in the belief that Gustafson was the true culprit and fought vigorously to prove it. Gustafson's defense strongly refuted the prosecution's version stating that if Gustafson and Boisman had indeed fought, Gustafson's injuries would have made it impossible for him to commit such a brutal murder and then walk over a half a mile to hide his shoes, only to return to the scene and act innocent. Ultimately, despite the defense's success in court, Gustafson remains a widely suspected individual and his acquittal has not put an end to the speculation surrounding the case. Nevertheless, no other suspect or evidence has surfaced since then, leaving the case still unsolved and shrouded in mystery. Only time will tell if new developments will eventually bring closure to this chilling case. Lake Bodum is a film inspired by the events of the Bodum murders. It depicts four teenagers, two girls and two boys, who return to the camping spot where the murders occurred, hoping to uncover more information about the case. However, things take a turn for worse as they find themselves trapped in a horrifying and deadly situation. If you are a fan of horror movies, this film is definitely worth checking out. It provides a unique perspective on the case and how it has affected those involved. In 1993, a melodic death metal band called In Earth was formed and four years later they signed a contract with Shiver Records. While searching for a good band name, they stumbled upon Lake Bodum and were struck by its impactful and intriguing story. They created a long list of potential names using the word Bodum and ultimately settled on Children of Bodum. Today, the band is well known for their name's origins as it is derived from the Lake Bodum murders. And so the story ends, leaving us with the lingering question of who the true culprit behind the Lake Bodum murders was. Was Gustafson falsely accused or did he really commit the heinous crimes? The severe injuries he sustained certainly raised doubts about his guilt. 
However, without any other suspects or evidence to go on, the case remains unsolved, leaving us to ponder the mystery. And so our time has come to an end, at least for the moment. It feels as though time has passed by too quickly. Nonetheless, I feel re-energized after our conversation, for just being able to converse with you is enough to uplift my spirits. I am grateful for the time we spent together, but we must bid each other farewell once again. For now. Before we do bid farewell, however, let me leave you with a question. Have you ever come across a story so captivating, chilling, and complex that it left you bewildered? Perhaps a tale whispered in hushed tones, or a hidden story from your very own town? If so, I would love to hear about it. Please feel free to leave me a comment on my social media channels, such as my YouTube or personal website. And don't forget to hit the notification bell to stay updated on my latest content. Who knows? Your suggestion might just become our next conversation topic. You can usually find me here at 6 a.m. Eastern on Mondays. However, life can be unpredictable and sometimes I may be running late. But fear not, our paths will cross again when you least expect it. Whether you find me or I find you, I will always have a new tale to share. And don't worry, my collection of stories is endless. And so we'll have plenty to discuss until my final tale is told. After all, there are more tales in this world than there are stars in the sky. That was episode 26 of ASM Murder. If you missed any previous episodes or simply want to listen to more of me, feel free to visit my website at murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. There you'll find links of all my episodes available on platforms like Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I'll leave links in the description below for your convenience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me your thoughts in the comments. Your feedback is valuable to me, and it helps me to bring you more compelling stories in the future. Thank you for lending me some of your time. Time is a precious gift. We must never squander it. May yours be filled with love and light. Until next time, please be kind to yourselves and be good to each other. Take care. This is your friendly neighborhood crew, signing off.